0: This is M. W. Lewis here. Welcome to the worlds of M. W. Lewis. I recorded something at the end of January regarding a serious topic that was bopping around the How to Play channel on the Grog Talk uh, Discord server, and I thought I would I would make a little a little uh, analysis of DMing styles based on the Dungeons and Dragons alignment system. So I recorded this while walking to get a haircut. You'll hear a train in the background. It's very exciting. And then I follow that up with three readings from Monday Night Aid and And these readings will get us well past the summer. Uh, I think the last reading I do today is from Session 10. Now, these are our sessions are loosely numbered because I believe I, I missed a few sessions in the write-up somehow. Uh, they're, they're way out of whack on my game server, I must admit. But it takes us to uh, September 11th, 2023, so we're catching up very quickly and and pretty soon. If I I keep at this uh, breakneck uh, pace, I would imagine by maybe even by April, I will be reading contemporaneous session descriptions and, and, of course, doing much fewer of them, which may or may not be good for the show. I have a few other topics to tackle before the end of February, Um, I also want to say happy birthday to a number of people in my games who are having birthdays in February, and I want to say happy birthday to myself, because mine is on Friday. And I will be long in the tooth, 53 years old. Amazing. So, with all of that, all of that, it's that time where I say, let's get on with the show. Ah... I knew something was brewing. I knew the winds were blowing rather quickly and in strange directions. I knew on the how to play thread or channel in the Grog Talk server, that something was about to, to, to plop down to cause a multi-poster controversy. We needed a controversy. 2024 was growing stale as the month of January came to its end. There were no grand debates, there were no grand arguments on how to play in the first couple weeks of the month, and lo and behold, it, it, it arose, its ugly head, the ugly head of discord popped up out of the muck, out of the marsh, like the fearsome head of the black dragon to burn down the placid state of our gaming society, and I love it. I love it, and it's it's a classic one. This is a rerun. It's an argument that's been played out and and, and uh, spent many many times for many many years, decades even, uh, on Dragon's Foot, on EN Worlds, on all the uh, RPG Net, in the in the Grog Empire itself. I believe this argument's been had. Uh, but it always comes up somebody always needs to stir the pot and, and bring it up and I used to participate in the argument uh, in writing in, in electronic characters and I, I don't I, I'm trying not to anymore because it's futile I I've come to realize now it's futile and I, I think it's because you can't get five people in a room to agree about anything and you certainly cannot get five people in a room to agree about what alignments popular fictional characters superheroes spies um whatnot heroes what alignments they conform to in the ad and d world yes that's the current uh that is the current issue spoiling the placid air at the grog talk how to play discord And I love it, I love it. So I put up kind of a tongue in cheek reply that, you know, why do we think stealing and and, uh, killing is evil? Why do we think that? And I gave a couple sarcastic replies like, isn't killing a vermin or a virus good? So there are certain killings that are good. And then I said, isn't stealing good when it's the egg from the chicken or the fruit from the tree or, I don't know, I gave one other example. So, and that's my point. I gotta pause. Uh, The dangers of walking and trying to record the pod. I just walked by someone I knew, I had to pause, talk to them for quite a while, and now I don't even remember what I was saying. But the point is, we can argue endlessly over this trap of a quiz, because we just can't agree over what neutral good really means or lawful good really means. I think at the, at the extremes, we all can agree. We all know what it means to be lawful and follow law. And we all know what it means to be chaotic and not follow law. Because chaos is really just the opposite of lawful. Uh, chaotic can be taken to a nihilistic extreme, which means you don't even cooperate with your friends. But that's not really what chaos means in the game. Chaos just means you don't really follow the law, and your party, and therefore your party's unpredictable. See, when people don't follow the law, they're unpredictable. Will you speed or will you not speed? Will you stop for the person in the crosswalk, or will you not stop for the person on the crosswalk? You see, you're unpredictable. You're chaotic. It doesn't mean will you screw over your friends all the time? Uh, maybe, and maybe. And that is chaos, I mean, that's certainly, that is the extreme of chaotic, that you're so unwilling to conform to anything that you will literally screw everyone over. But I would imagine a person who lives their lives in extreme chaos, like maybe the Joker, really wouldn't live very long. You'd have to be so all-powerful to make it far in life like maybe the joker now i'm walking out here you can hear the train going by just so you know that's what that loud clatter is i actually live near a train track and i do a walk i'm walking into town right now to get some breakfast and i have reunited with the track so for part of my walk i'm I'm pretty far from the tracks and then i reunite and i'm walking along I'm actually on the other side of it now, the way I walk. My house is on one side of it and I'm on the other side. So I'm gonna pause. So back to this idea of extreme chaos. If you're extremely chaotic, where you will just backstab and screw anybody in your life because you just believe you can, you can't even, you won't even adhere to an easy agreement that you'll cover your friend's back while they're trying to steal something. You're just not gonna make it. Nobody's gonna wanna, wanna be around you. Now, now these kinds of characters persist in the game because DMs allow it, or the player party allows it. But the fact is the matter, that kind of character should not participate in a D&D game. Chaotic characters would just be, I don't mind breaking the law. The king told us not to hunt in his woods, you're in the woods, your chaotic character goes out and kills a deer. And the rest of the party might say, why'd you do that? And he would say, Ah. I don't care about the king's damn laws. If he, if he wants to protect his deer, why doesn't he have people here protecting him? I say anyone should be able to kill the deer. That's chaos, right? Unpredictable. So, but, you know, every, uh, everyone doesn't agree. You know, three, three other people are right now shaking their heads and saying that's all BS. That's not right. So we don't agree. So don't participate in these quizzes. We're never going to agree where James Bond or Han Solo or Superman fall on this this continuum of of alignments so but I want to not talk about that I, I do want to talk about the alignments and trying to order uh, our world by them but I want to talk about a different world of people and how do they fit into the alignment spectrum or grid there's I, in ad d I, I just off the top of my head I believe there's about 10 of them 10 alignments you got your you're uh, good and evil divided by uh, lawful, neutral, and uh, chaos. And then you have the pure neutral kind of in the center, which is neither good nor evil so or chaotic. So um, he could do all of them. So that, to me, adds up to ten. Or, or But maybe it's just nine. I don't know. I can't, you know, I'd have to look. Uh, maybe there is no pure neutral. I think there is just pure neutral. There. So that would mean ten. And I'd like to talk about it in the terms of your DMing style. Ha. Huh. What is your DMing style? Are you a lawful DM? In other words, do you endeavor or do you actually run your games by the book, by the letter of the law, rules as written? And yes, there are folks in our community who are lawful dms or or deem themselves to be lawful dms even though as we do find through uh through careful analysis sometimes the members of the grog empire the higher ups make proclamations that they say are canonical which turns out not to be actually canonical because you can't find it in the books so i would argue we, very, we have very few truly lawful DMs in our community, but most are lawful. Let's say lawful and chaos is actually more a spectrum. And we have more DMs in our community who, will, who are generally lawful. They're really running it by the book. They know the rules really well. James is a great example. He knows the rules. I mean, that guy knows information out of the book and page numbers unless he's tricking us on his podcast and preparing in advance it seems like he can almost go down to the page number when he remembers really uh uh, rules that aren't used very much so i'm very impressed there he's a lawful i actually think our friend queller is a lawful this guy endeavors and i give him a lot of respect as you know from my interview with him back in the fall He really is trying to run these rules as written. And Queller goes so far as to not even want to make decisions that are forced upon us, because the rules, as we know, have gaps. They have contradictions. And because of those gaps and contradictions, you must make a decision at the table oftentimes without consulting the books or anything. But what I like about Queller is he really tries to get the, the sage advice of our community before he has to make those decisions. Or if he made a decision during his game, because he's so lawful, he comes running back to the community of sages to get validation or, or find out if he needs to do a course correction. So there you go. That's your lawful, that's your lawful dungeon master. James. Queller and there's a few others. Now there's a few other sages in our community who uh, have a clear delineation of how to run the game in their mind but often are lacking in the proof of the book and what they're actually what actually telling us or advising us to do is run the game according to some form of homebrewing that they've incorporated into their game over the course of decades and in their mind it's become the rule of law or rules as written. But in fact, you must be careful with these kinds of DMs, these kinds of sages, because they're really not giving you the rules as written. Because when you ask them for actual page numbers and passages, or you go look it up yourself, you, you will find oftentimes they're just telling you what they're doing, that's just how they're doing it. And they are not careful in their language to say that they're, uh, giving you a modified interpretation of the game. And that's okay, I would put them closer to the lawful type of DM, but they're really further away from a good, from a James or a Queller. These are the kind of folks who are moving more towards a chaotic DM. And then you have your outright, out in the air, open chaos. These are guys who will admit that they're taking rules from various editions. They are borrowing rules from other RPG games altogether. And they might even be making up tons of their own rules and improving things, implementing a silver standard, or maybe coming up with uh, different leveling uh, expectations, things we've talked about even on my podcast. Or maybe they have a, their own shield table, which delineates shields. I'm guilty of that. Um, there's all kind, I have modified rules myself. I am more in the middle between law and chaos. I, I am closer to chaos. I am perfectly willing to take different rules, apply different rules, uh, if, if they are better. Um, I definitely don't hesitate to make rulings during my game to fill in gaps in the rules. But I do also, I'm not, I'm not at the far end of chaotic DM. I'm, cl- I'm in the middle between Law and Chaos. Because I also do spend tons of time looking up things, consulting the sages on the various fora. And I don't just rely on the Grog Empire. I go to Dragon's Foot, EN World. I do try to get to a more perfect understanding of the rules as written. And I often do a lot of course correcting to bring us back closer to the rules. And what I like to do when I start a new game is I like to play fast and loose with the rules at the early levels to both help the, the players get to a higher level and also to see what, what the mood of the players is. How tolerant are they to creative ideas? How creative do they want to be? How close to the best or close to the book do they really want to rule, run the game? And by the time you get them the second or third level, I might say, hey, a lot of these kind of side rules we've been tinkering with, they're going to become, they're going to stick, they're going to be the rules from the rest of the game forward. Or you might find all the tinkerings causing too much confusion in your party, and you just go to the players and say, hey guys, why don't we just ratchet this back a little? Why don't we just go rules as written? And that's what I did in my previous game. And it really worked for a long, after about third level, we started ratcheting down and going back to rules as written. And uh, the game really did move smoother. I am a big advocate. I, like, I would like to be a perfectly lawful DM. But I dabble on the chaos side because I do have people in my games who, who have played other editions or do play a lot of other RPGs or just have played so long they want, they want some kind of variety. They want to try some different things. But I wouldn't, I I would be perfectly fine. In fact, I've converted my Friday night games gonna try to get back off the ground and kind of been been dormant for a while. We even agreed to go just right back to straight basic play because if you play basic rules, you can run all those rules without any worries because we're only gonna play once a month in that game. So I said, why don't we just go to a basic interpretation of this game and we all voted. I think one guy really didn't wanna play basic but he got outvoted. We're going to just run it by basic, and if you're playing basic rules, man, you can play those rules easy. It's easy. You don't need to consult with anybody. It's a beautiful game. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I don't know if you guys think I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. I love the basic game. It's elegant. It's a beautiful game. And I know, just like there's people who love OD&D, because it's an elegant, basic game. It's easy to run. So I would like to play a game closer to the rules. The problem with AD&D is it invites, with its gaps, its inconsistencies, its kind of uh, Gygaxian, the high Gygaxian language, it actually inherently invites the various interpretations and rules dabbling. And then, like I said, when people play these games long enough, they, um, they, want, they get bored, too. You get bored of the same rules. That's why a lot of people really liked OSE and Osric when they came out, because those books modified the rules a little bit. They were presented as the rules of AD&D or BASIC. But when you really dig in there, there are modifications to the rules. And people like that. See, people are like, oh, a new way of doing it. But then, for me, when I play OSE or Osric, I don't like the rule. I eventually come, I like the original rules better. So I, I appreciate the fact that they made the game rules easier to, to plod through, but I don't, like the, I don't like the variations to the rules. So as a result, I, I never use those rules when I play. And same with Castles and Crusades. I don't like the changes to the, to the rules that are in Castles and Crusades. So I am more of a lawful with a chaotic side of me. And I, I suspect the great many of the DMs in the Grog Empire are very similar. And let's just real quickly go, go down one more path here with DMs. There are good DMs and there are evil DMs. I'm a softie. I've admitted it. I'm kind of a softie. I've played with James. I think he's kind of a softie. I've played with some other guys. Brian Larch, he's not, man. He's evil. He's an evil GM. He will find ways to kill characters. Um, I don't know about Queller. I don't know. I played with him. I kind of think he's in the middle between good and evil. Uh, I think he if a player dies, a player dies. But I don't think Queller's going to exhaust every possibility to keep a player alive like I would do. I will, I will make sure if a player's dying, we have indeed come to the end of that character's existence. I even now have incorporated, thanks to watching the Grog talk, I've incorporated the uh, Divine Intervention in my game. One last shot, man. It's a small percentage, but why not? Why not? It sure beats having to roll up and waste time making up a new character. So, but I think Scourge of the North, he's evil. So, it's, so you're getting my point. You know, guys who will just outright try to kill the characters, those are evil DMs, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Or, and then you have your good DMs who try not to. And I don't mean good like we're better than them. I'm meaning just good like our modern idea of good. We're not, we're not trying to kill people. Uh, both types of DMs are good DMs, by the way, and you should play with both types. Uh, I'm good meaning they're competent and you're gonna have a fun time. I mean on the alignment scale. So that's it, I'm not gonna say any more on this. Uh, I would just like to th- you to think about your style of DMing. Are you a lawful DM or are you a chaotic DM? And I'm not gonna say neutral, I'm gonna throw neutral out of this. Or are you a good DM or um, a chaotic or evil DM? I, I think I'm I'm more like a chaotic, new I'm a chaotic good DM is how I would describe my my demeanor as a DM. But that chaos is, has a asterisk. I'm also lawful. I'm I'm both sides of it. I, I like to be lawful, but I don't mind the interjection of alterations. So I'm I'm more of a lawful. Lawful chaotic, good DM. So there you go. A reading from Monday Night ad session 8, August 21st. New arrivals. 13, Groter Setnengu, Hvil Dardager, rest day. The clerics of Vorgarns are teaching the elves and the other travelers the civilized calendar of the Vicon lands, including the days of the week. This day began with the party meeting a few travelers who arrived the day before on a riverboat called the Nautilus, piloted by a well-known captain, Nemo. On board were two men who had previously been taken off the riverboat enterprise and held captive in Pirate Town, the former town called Fishwick. These were Galaric the Bold Paladin and Friedhelm, the devout acolyte of Hepney, the god of chance or luck. Three other travelers were on board Arvin, another acolyte, a thief named Stan, and an illusionist named Elias, The latter two in Galaric were in no mood to continue with travel at the moment, but Captain Dimitri recruited the two clerics to join the party for another foray foray to the Haunted Keep. He was getting a bit anxious to see maps of this strange complex abandoned long ago. So the party set out with the two clerics. Helmir begged out of the adventure for the day as his other responsibilities were mounting. For once, the party reached the keep without any encounters. Perhaps the god of chance, Hepney, was on their side this day. But as they traveled to the far side of the keep, crossing the north tower, a goblin stuck its nasty snout over the broken parapet above and fired a crossbow bolt at at them. Taking cover along the wall, the party scrambled quickly into the keep to fight their assailant, who suddenly disappeared from view as he moved along to get another shot. With haste, they made their way to the rooms they figured the hobgoblin stood above and developed a sinking suspicion that the hobgoblin fell through the wadded, rotted wooden floor above. As they went into the room with the trapdoor to the lower level, the hobgoblin sprung from a secret room at the end of the hallway and bravely fought to its own demise. The party decided to go below to see what was there. In the first room, fire beetles assaulted the party. But with a a bit of effort, the party dispatched them and even cut out their glowing glands for a light source. Outside that room was a rectangular hallway, much longer than wide. A strange gelatinous creature moved down the hall to block the only obvious way out of it. After much consternation and fear, the party decided to confront this strange creature of the underworld. In the ensuing fight, Friedhelm took the worst of it, but the cuboid creature was reduced to liquid and goo in no time. The party recovered metal treasures which the creature could not consume. Quintus decided to take a tiny taste of a liquid from a metal vial they found in a gluey blob. After a moment, his tongue swelled out of his mouth, much to the delight of his companions. After some good-natured ribbing, mostly about how happy Matilda will be, Quintus had to suffer a bit until the effect of the potion wore off. He would be unable to cast any spells with a verbal component in the meantime. The party thoroughly mapped the hallway and elected to go through the double doors in the middle of the space. Beyond was a large room with many columns and a high ceiling. As Francois and Arvin cautiously led them through the first set of columns, they realized they were being surrounded by a large number of creatures with beady eyes, low to the ground. Rats, they all realized. Friedhelm decided to bless the party and the others chose to take off their packs and get out oil to try and scare the creatures with fire. At these movements, the rats suddenly attacked. The battle was fierce and deadly for the rats. As the final few rats fought valiantly, one transformed into a tall rat man. Feeling the party was suddenly at a big disadvantage, Quintus cast his sleep spell, sending all besides himself into the world of dreams. He remembered his studies of fantastical beasts and realized the rat man was a lycanthrope. So he used the silver dagger given to him by the Dowager to slit the sleeping creature's throat. After awakening the others, they saw the Rat Man had transformed back to its natural form a young human man. He looked familiar to Quintus and Canamor. After mapping out the room and taking a gilded statuette off an altar, they discovered a secret door next to the altar. They decided to open it as their last action for the outing. Inside was a shaft with a ladder that descended beyond the light of the beetle glands. The party decided to call it quits for the day and take the body of the deceased Borgarneser back to town. They were confident that Captain Dimitri would approve of their progress this time. Uh, Here I would like to just quickly uh, clarify something in this description. Now... Um Quintus, the player playing Quintus is also in a Friday night game I run which we haven't run it very much over the last 12 months and at some point I think he mixed up his spell books from the from the two different player characters uh because he he has sleep, but he used magic missile in the last session description and he's and he started using it again in in the more recent, um, sessions. So we had a discussion about it, and I'm not going to penalize him, but he he realized that there must be a mistake too because you can only have one offensive spell uh, according to the rules, and it's either Sleep or Magic Missile. And, and since the first few times he used Magic, it was Sleep, we agreed that he's mixing up his characters. So he needs to do a better job of keeping track of that and this is something, you know, as a DM, you've got to pay attention to this. I didn't catch on right away. I realized it once I started reading the session descriptions. And this player character hasn't hasn't provided me his sheet yet, too. So I need his sheet uh, so I can keep track of this stuff as well. But, um, you know, I thought about penalizing him for this mistake, because it is a bad mistake. But I, I think it was an honest one, and, and I'll just let it go for now. Uh, this particular player is a very busy... Has a very busy profession, so I, I can see how it was just a mistake, and there's no sense in, in ruining anything about, uh, you know, making hard feelings or anything about it. It's not a big deal. So I just wanted to bring that point up. A reading from Monday Night AD&D, Session 9, August twenty eighth, 2023. Snake Venom the 14th of Groder Setnengu, Gudsdagur, God's Day. In some communities, observing God's Day is important, but in others, only the old and infirm stay in and pray. In modern times, most just say a quiet prayer or light votive candles in the church, or a candle under their icons at home before getting on with the drudgery of their life. For the adventurers, it was business as usual. Before we get to that, let's remember how their rest day came to an end. Showing up at Northgate with a dead person caused quite a stir, but it was all sorted out soon enough. The town's officials took careful note of the party's report so they could deliberate over their findings. In the meantime, the party went to the tailor's store and retrieved Quintus's fancy new robe, hat, and boots, which he ordered the day after they returned with a wounded Eldon almost over a week ago. They then found three merchants in the riverboat inn and sold their gems and jewelry for a whopping 3,029 crowns. An interesting development occurred here, as Bart, the innkeeper, outbid the merchants for the fancy necklace the party had found, offering to pay 1,025 crowns for the piece. He wanted to give it to the missus. The party took an IOU from Bart. With business done, the party heard from Captain Dimitri. He let them know that with the discovery of a rat man, who indeed was a former resident of Borgarnes, the Thane would hold off prosecuting the poor scapegoat and give the heroes more time to find Thomas, the suspected murderer. Dimitri also wanted them to complete the map of the South Tower. Before they retired for the evening, Skelgira entered the cleric's respite, with a bit of flare, as there was a crack of lightning and a boom of thunder when the door opened in front of her. She moved swiftly to the party and yelled at them for failing to deliver the promised venom sacks and bee stingers. She forced Quintus to sign an updated promissory note for the delivery of outstanding product in just a few days hence. The next morning, a gray, rainy, and cool day, the party went to work once again to try and solve the perplexing complex of the old or haunted keep. Canamore wasn't able to go, unfortunately, as he awoke with a sickness in his bowels. Fortunately, the paladin Galaric was looking for a bit of action after spending several idle days in the town, so pledged to join them to guard their rear rank. Francois was particularly plucky this session and took it upon himself to press the party with great efficiency. Once more, the party avoided encountering creatures in the woods and made a bee line to the front gate of the ruins. As they crossed the threshold, a killer bee nearby decided to attack them. With much fear, the party stood their ground, and Galric rushed forth to kill the buzzing menace. Unfortunately, in his exuberance, the paladin destroyed the bee's stinger. The party decided to kill two other bees on the far sides of the bailey and cut off the stingers to make good on their IOU to the witch. This done, Francois advanced quickly into the south tower. He ascertained that the rattlesnakes were no longer in the pit, so jumped over it. Arvin followed. The two cleared the space for Friedhelm to leap across. Francois poked his head into the hallway beyond and was surprised to see the giant rattlesnakes heading straight for him. An ugly battle ensued. Francois and Arvin were bitten a number of times. By the end of the battle they were feeling the effects of the snake venom so they consumed each so they consumed so they consumed vials of the anti-venom. The party had to rest quite a while so they could recover from the venom and the antidote. Finally, the party made their way to the areas of the tower yet to be mapped. In the one room, Francois noted a number of green slimes on the floor and the ceiling. Having heard the harrowing tale of the hero's first encounter with the slimes, he freaked out and commanded the party to move quickly into the last room to be explored. Inside, they argued a bit about what to do about the slimes. Francois really, really didn't want anything to do with them for fear they would ruin his beloved spedum. While they argued, Galaric noted a strange symbol carved into the stone wall across from the door. Less than a minute in the room, the party heard squeaks and squeals through the walls. Then the floor started descending. Within minutes, it settled into the middle of a large square room with one apparent exit. While searching the room, Francois spotted a large black spider on the wall crawling toward him. A battle ensued, but the spider was killed rather easily. The ceiling for the parts of the room outside the elevator shaft must have been very high, as they could not see it with the beetle gland torches. So Friedhelm tied one to his ten-foot pole. They finally could see the ceiling. And just below it on the wall, Francois was searching when attacked. They noted a small rectangular cubby hole. They realized they had no way of climbing the wall to see what was in the cubby, so they left the room. Outside was a hallway. To the right, they couldn't see how far it went. To the left, the same. Only Francois could tell that there was a turn in the hallway not far from the doorway. They went that way. At the turn, there were ascending stairs. They took them. After a time, the stairs made a right turn and continued up. They followed. These stairs deposited onto a round landing with an archway to the left, beyond which was a spiral staircase going straight up. Ahead was another set of stairs that went down. After careful deliberation, the party decided to follow the spiral stairs. The stifling dead air was annoying, but soon Francois reached a ceiling. Looking at their map, they wondered if the room above might be where the green slimes were. Francois slid the stone trapdoor aside. The first thing he spotted was a green slime. This was very triggering for the brave fighter, and all hell broke loose. Next time, fight the slime or what? A reading from Monday Night AD&D, Session 10, September 11th, 2023, Night-Time Invasion, 14, Groter Goods Gouds Degur, God's Day. After much panic and arguing, the party brainstormed away around the slimes. Understanding their metal weapons and flesh were at mortal risk, the magic user had an idea. He proposed using his mystic power of sleep on the slimes. So the party painstakingly descended the narrow stairs in the hot moist air to the landing below and reshuffled their order so that Quintus ascended the stairs first, followed by Friedhelm, Arvin, Francois, then Galaric. The elf poked his head through the three foot round trap door and observed the slime on the stone trap door a slime close by on the other side of the floor, two slimes hung on the ceiling near the door out of the room, and a slime sat on the floor in front of the door. He cast sleep. When the previously unmoving slimes continued to unmove, he declared great success and climbed carefully out of the trapdoor. He almost stumbled onto the slime closest to him from nerves. Eventually, the whole party stood along the back wall of the room amidst pieces of decayed wood and broken clay pots. Quintus decided to bravely maneuver to the door and tried to sidestep past the slimes on the ceiling. Suddenly, one dropped on him, covering his left shoulder and back. He managed to run out of the room without stepping on the slime on the floor, and quickly removed his now-ruined fine green robe with the ten secret pockets, which he had just picked up that morning from the tailor. He then used his staff to push the mess away from the door, ruining it, too. Finally, Friedhelm and Arvin reached a breaking point. Burn them, they declared. Why not, they said to the querying eyes of their companions. They lit torches and burned away the slime on the floor by the door, careful not to move under the one still on the ceiling. The party, satisfied with the day's accomplishments, returned to Borgarnes. The north gate guards took great delight as Quintus approached in just his undergarments. Inside town, he went straight to his room and donned the mysterious, magical elven cloak previously found. Catamor felt better, so joined the group as Galaric turned in, so tired after all the excitement. The party went to Skelgira's to give her the stingers and venom sacks. She was pleased. She inquired if any of the party was bitten by the rattlers, and the party affirmed that Arvin and Francois had been. She was greatly interested in this. She offered to pay them for an ounce of their blood. The party agreed. They then haggled with her over the Black Widow stinger poison and in combination with the blood, agreed to pay her 28 crowns for a vial of Black Widow antidote. A guard approached and told them Captain Dimitri wanted to see them at the riverboat inn. There he pored over their maps and received a satisfactory report. He told them they were doing well. Then there was a sound of a horn blast, a long, deep one. Dimitri looked up and said, Westgate! Come with me. They all hustled to Westgate, where several older women were agitating the guards. They all settled down at the appearance of the captain. The ladies told them that a large, flying, black beast swept over their farm and took a milking cow. They wanted someone, anyone, to retrieve Bessie. The party and Dimitri pondered what the beast might be, eventually deciding it might have been gasp, a dragon. Still, with money top of mind, they went back to the riverboat inn to collect the crowns Bart owed them for the necklace. Bart seemed to be not so subtly adverting his gaze from the group. They found out quickly that he still had to get the crowns, but he promised to pay them the next day. He offered to give them a free dinner in the evening if he was as he was serving pheasants. He said the party could sit with the three merchants from the capital. The party agreed. They asked if he could give them some meat to help Francois and Arvin, who needed a good high iron meal for the blood donation, but they didn't tell Bart that part. He had none, though, and recommended they go to the docks and buy some fish. The party did. They learned the fishermen were back on the water, but had brought in a haul of fish already. Arvin and Francois chowed down on the raw fish each. Burp. They went to Skilgira's and were fascinated by her strange hut. She had a vat of something boiling over the center pit. She had tables covered with all kinds of oddities, including a chipmunk skull. And she had a bench set up with her implements to draw the blood, goat stomachs and intestines, and two small needles. She masterfully drew the blood from each of them simultaneously while using the stomachs as pumps. She murmured strange words the whole time, and some in the party thought she was saying, Where is my assistant? Why did he leave me? Over and over, finally ending with mutton, or munson, or "moutain," or something like that. The deed done, the party went to the respite, then to dinner at the riverboat. The lady greeted them heartily and showed off the beautiful necklace Bart had given her. The party now felt really burned as they were thinking of repossessing the item and asking the merchants to buy it. Now they weren't sure if they could break the nice old lady's heart. They chatted with the merchants over dinner and learned they were returning to Reykjavik, the fabulous capital city of Siglinga. The merchants beseeched the heroes to go with so that they did not waste their lives in Borgarnes. The party said they may go to the capital someday. Later, the party settled in for a good night's sleep. Satisfied, Gudsdugur, the Day of the Gods, was a good one. Suddenly, Canamor stirred in bed. An impregnable darkness blanketed the room. He was dismayed waking up like this in the middle of the night. He tried to settle his head back on his pillow but then heard the sound of a distant horn. Suspecting that might have triggered him from sleep, he went to the window and looked outside. Directly across from the respite stood two towers guarding North Gate. Atop the tower, he watched in the dim torchlight lighting the parapet, the guards shuffling to the front of the tower, out of his view. Canamor started waking his companions. As he did, they could all hear the sounding of more horns, then distant the distant clamor of battle. While they got dressed, Heomir's voice filled the hallway outside their rooms, yelling that the city had been invaded. The party made for the street as quickly as possible, and they were greeted by the sight of a full blown battle at North Gate, not more than two hundred feet away. Guards fought lizard men and it seemed many had already fallen. Yet one soldier stood out. The party observed a warrior throwing a glowing axe that wended its way through the town's soldiers until it found a lizard man striking it down. The axe then emerged from the dead beast and found its owner, who prepared to throw it again. As the heroes tried to figure out what to do, a stream of women and children and elderly people came around from the city side of the inn led by some of the town's clerics. The clerics were telling the refugees to shelter in, in the Thane's palace. So the party decided to go there to protect the people. But a cleric screamed at them to get into the city. Goblins and hobgoblins are robbing and stealing, kidnapping and burning! The party immediately turned to stop these fiendish enemies. In poor town, they saw huts on fire and heard the screams of innocence. So they rushed there to find a hobgoblin and three goblins dragging two poor seniors from their huts. Not expecting to encounter a party of warriors, the enemies were caught off guard. The party rushed them and smote them in a matter of minutes. Arvin was particularly vicious in his attacks. Suddenly, another group composed of a hobgoblin and three goblins burst from a hut nearby. This time, they had a young mother and a child. The party launched on them with ferocity. Arvin, again, was extremely violent, three natural twenties in a row. Quintus told the elders to get to the Thane's palace and then rush to the woman and child. The child was unmoving, and the mother wailed. Friedhelm healed the child, invoking his deity, Hepney, But for whatever reason, Hepney did not bring the child back. So Arvin invoked his deity, and at least... Stabilized the child. The woman quickly departed with the child. He'd likely survive. The party took off to hunt more enemies and found them dragging the tailor and his family from his shop. The party charged and, in a few rounds, took the four creatures out. Then they rushed to the riverboat inn, which was burning. Outside, Bart and a few town guards were holding back two of the enemy patrols while the lady of the inn, the the merchants and others tried to douse the fire. The party closed onto this battle, drawing a hobgoblin and two goblins to them. After a few minutes these monsters were killed, as were the ones fighting the townsfolk. The parties The party answered Bart's plea to help save the riverboat inn. Unsure if that was the best thing to do given the chaos all throughout the city, they decided helping their friend Bart was a worthy goal. They charged the docks and in two trips Along with the others, the riverboat inn was spared destruction. With regular town folks dousing fires throughout the town, all the fighting men were summoned to Northgate. The evasion was over, but Thane Alexei, the man wielding the magical axe, somberly noted that some were kidnapped and many were killed. He told every fighting person to return to Northgate the following morning for a full report. The bold and fierce Thane then dismissed everyone. Next time, Aftermath. Don't forget to explore the many worlds in your own mind.